It's Friday, December 8th, and you're listening to Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. Coming up this week, the owner of the Edenville Dam near Midland has been found liable for $120 million of flood damage. But some flood victims say that money won't do much for them. The Enbridge Tunnel Project has received state approval. We'll hear what it could mean for the Line 5 pipeline in the Straits of Mackinac. Then we'll get an update on efforts to raise the minimum wage for tipped workers in Michigan and the impact it could have on the restaurant industry. And finally, MLive's travel and outdoor recreation reporter Emily Bingham shares some fun ways to make the most of this Michigan winter. That's all coming up on Michigan News from MLive. It's been more than three years since the Edenville Dam collapsed, causing catastrophic flooding in and around Midland. In May of 2020, Governor Gretchen Whitmer declared a state of emergency as thousands evacuated their homes following the dam's failure. Last week, a federal judge found the owner of the Edenville Dam liable for $120 million of damage to Michigan's natural resources. While that's a victory for the state, some of the victims of the flood say it's too little too late. MLive's Justin Engel spoke with some of those folks for a feature on our website and is here to tell us more. Hi, Justin. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show again. So let's start with last week's ruling. According to the court, how is the owner of the Edenville Dam responsible for the flood damage? Uh, Well, some people would say he's not being held responsible uh, at all. But what the federal judge uh, is ruling is that the, you know, this, this owner is liable to the state for about $120 $120 million in damages, and that, that money would go to, to restore the ecosystem that sustained, you know, the mussels and the fisheries that were that were such a prevalent part of that community before this owner's dam failed. Um, but yeah, that, that judge's ruling is, is basically saying the owner is, is responsible because he was not taking care of that property, that, that dam, um, and because of that lack of care, uh, it failed, and uh, it failed an entire community that, that uh, was impacted by this you know, devastating 500-year year flood. Um, you know, we're, we're almost four years out from that now, and it's still something that's absolutely uh, front center for so many people in this community. And it's safe to say that the people you spoke with for your latest story on this, they weren't entirely satisfied with the outcome of the court ruling. One of those people is a man named Daniel Allen. What was his reaction to last week's ruling? Yeah, Mr. Allen is, he's among many people who live near the lakes and the rivers that were impacted by this flood. He has lakeside property, has two more, more mortgages there. Yeah, his, his reaction to the ruling seems to be one, too, that's echoed by a lot of his neighbors. Uh, he, he called this ruling, you know, quote unquote, an empty victory. Uh, and he said that for a few reasons. You know, for one, like I, uh, for one, the, the, the dam owner filed for bankruptcy. Um, a while back. And so there's a, a chance, and he would say, a lot of people would say, a pretty good chance that the dam owner will actually never pay a dime um, in damages at all. Uh, but also, uh, another reason that Mr. Allen is saying this is a, an empty victory is because, you know, he, he and uh, a lot of his neighbors are involved in class action lawsuits that are currently tied up in courts. Um, you know, these are lawsuits that involve him and other residents like him who are trying to recover you know, some of these financial damages, um, you know, that they sustained during, during this flood. You know, I, I talked to another, another neighbor who called this a, like, like this ruling kind of like a, another slap in the face. You know, she said, it's like the courts are saying, we care more about the mussels and the fish that were in the lake than the people still living there. 
And is there any chance these flood victims will end up with some kind of compensation from Lee Mueller, the owner of the dam that failed? Are they hopeful at all that this could somehow be made right in the end, I guess? People I spoke to aren't, aren't hopeful at all. I mean, it's, you know, to be seen, you know, that could happen, of course, but they're not hopeful. There's a lot of pessimism there. Um, for some, you know, this isn't just about finances, though. You know, these are, are people who lost items, you know, that can't be replaced with money, you know, like photos, you know, keepsakes, memories uh, tied to the, you know, the property that just isn't there anymore. You know, you, you can you can replace, you know, a wall that's been destroyed by water damages, but you can't restore the notches on that wall, you know, that a family used to chart the growth of their child. There's just a lot of devastation in these uh, people's lives that a court can't restore. So um, w- when they see uh, rulings like this that, that don't benefit them on top of no progress in their own cases, on top of all of that, it's, yeah, it's very, it's not, they're, they're not very optimistic. Another property owner you spoke with is Glenn Moot. And you wrote that he did see some silver lining in the court's decision. How so? Yeah, just to be clear, I mean, he he, he wasn't particularly happy about the, the ruling in general, but he, he said there was some silver lining. It wasn't a total loss. You know, he, he felt the ruling might send a message to, to other infrastructure owners, you know, other owners of dams or other infrastructures that, that you know, uh, could do a lot of damage to people's homes if they aren't cared for in the right way. And so the, his thought is, okay, maybe this ruling is a, a message, and that message is, you know, being you have you have a responsibility as, you know, the owner of a dam to ensure, you know, it's safe, you know, and, and not taking that responsibility um, seriously means that you you you're going to be asked to pay for it later. And of course, in this particular case, uh, this owner might not have to pay any money at all, um, but maybe there could be some accountability and. Uh, being on the wrong side of these kinds of things. I mean, at least we are here talking about it, right, um, in, in, in a public way. So, yeah, Mr. Moot's hope is that the, the message will be will, will, might cause other infrastructure owners to, to more seriously consider how they manage these properties and, and to prevent, you know, another flood of 2020 from happening in some other community. Justin Engel is a reporter covering mid-Michigan for MLive. You can read his full feature on the charges given for the Edenville Dam's failure and the reactions of the people most affected. That's, of course, at our website, MLive.com. Justin, thanks for your time. Thank you. The Michigan Public Service Commission is a state agency that regulates public utilities, things like electricity, telecommunications, natural gas, Their meetings in Lansing aren't typically lively affairs. But more than 100 people packed into last week's meeting, and hundreds more attended virtually. That's because a controversial topic was on the table, Enbridge's Great Lakes Tunnel Project. This tunnel would house a new section of Line 5, a 70-year-old pipeline that currently runs through the Straits of Mackinac. The tunnel would be buried hundreds of feet beneath the Straits, deep in the bedrock. Last Friday, a major decision was made in the tunnel's permitting process. MLive's Garrett Ellison and Sherry McWhorter have been covering this story, and they both join us now. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Garrett. Hi there. Hello, Patrick. So let's start with the big news here. What did the Public Service Commission decide, and what's it mean for the tunnel project? Well, the commission, often called by the acronym MPSC, granted a permit to Enbridge to build a tunnel and relocate a portion of the Line 5 pipeline inside of it. 
that will lead to the underwater portion of the pipeline being decommissioned, but that will take years. Garrett, you were at this meeting on Friday. What was the mood like in the room and how did folks react to the decision? The mood in the room was, uh, well, pretty tense, I would say. Uh, Folks reacted, I guess, like you would expect opponents of the pipeline to react. They were upset and they were kind of shouting down uh, the commissioners a little bit while they were giving the decision. Uh, There was a great deal of angry uh, muttering and and talking over uh, the commissioners during the meeting. And then during the public comment, there was, uh, you know, a great deal of sort of strident commentary and, you know, fingers being pointed at the the commissioners and, and, you know, the the gist of it was essentially just a lot of, you know, um, upset people, um, uh, primarily pipeline opponents with this decision. Well, when you're addressing a hostile room that doesn't approve of your decision, it's probably a good idea to explain your reasoning. Dan Scripps did that. He's the chair of the MPSC. What did he have to say? Well, he, he said there is a need for the products that Line 5 carries, and also a need to get the section of the pipeline that rests on Great Lakes bottomlands out of the water. He said the chosen route for the tunnel is reasonable and an improvement over the status quo. He said the tunnel would eliminate the very real threat of anchor strikes on the pipeline, and that Enbridge intends to build the structure to beyond federally required safety standards. Finally, He said none of the alternatives are feasible and would actually have a greater environmental impact than the tunnel. He basically said the tunnel is the best option. You know, opponents of Line 5 have been sounding the alarm for years. They they point to the 2010 oil spill in the Kalamazoo River from another Enbridge pipeline and to 2018 when a ship dragging its anchor through the straits damaged Line 5. But wouldn't the tunnel eliminate that threat? Why isn't the tunnel seen as a solution by some of its opponents? Well, some climate action advocates argue that it's completely counterproductive to invest in fossil fuels at this point in the climate crisis, that instead we should be spending money on renewable and other clean energy generation. Um, Others uh, suggest that the the tunnel proposal is really just a ploy, that it's just a, a means of keeping the oil flowing through the existing pipeline as long as possible, uh, so that while Enbridge and and state and federal regulators work on plans for the tunnel, um, the the company can continue to earn profits off the oil that's flowing through the existing 70-year-old infrastructure. You know, it's important to note that the tunnel isn't a completely done deal yet. Enbridge is still waiting on an environmental review of the project by the Army Corps of Engineers. That's at the federal level. But the project has now gotten all the approval it needs at the state level, and yet, Here's where it gets really complicated, so stay with me, people. The governor and attorney general have been actively trying to shut down Line 5 entirely for over three years now. So the state has greenlit this project, but at the same time, there's an ongoing lawsuit in which state leaders are trying to shut down the pipeline. What's the status of that litigation, and have Gretchen Whitmer or Dana Nessel said anything about Friday's decision? Patrick, some of this ends up being boilerplate that just keeps getting tacked on to the bottom of a story until there's, a, there's an update. So 
So here we go at, with it. <laughs> at the moment, uh, the governor and the attorney general, you know, they're in a legal battle with Enbridge, right, over the governor's 2020 shutdown order, uh, which Enbridge is, you know, basically defied and challenged in court. Um, and the two sides are fighting about whether the case should be in state or federal court. And they've been doing that for a couple of years. And right now, the case is being, you know, that decision, whether it should be in federal or state court, uh, is being reviewed by the Sixth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, right? And so it's, they haven't even gotten to the uh, merits of the argument uh, on either side yet. They're just still arguing over venue uh, in that lawsuit. Um, and, 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 you know, kind of happening concurrently with that is this diplomatic um, negotiation or discussion between the federal government and the Canadian federal government over the 1977 treaty, uh, which uh, the federal government of Canada formally invoked a couple of years ago to, you know, which, and it says that it blocks the state of Michigan from forcing uh, Enbridge to close the pipeline. So, you know, it's sort of TBD on, on the legal you know, issues between the state of Michigan and, and, and Bridge, as well as the uh, negotiations over the treaty. Yeah, you know, there's so many moving parts to this story. There really is. And you're mentioning litigation between Michigan and Enbridge. Um, you've got negotiations between the United States and Canada. You mentioned that 1977 treaty. There are also older treaties with tribal nations in the Great Lakes region that tribal communities feel would be violated if this project happened, would be violated if there was an oil spill in the Straits of Mackinac. So a lot of litigation to sift through and something to keep an eye on. It's been such a big statewide story for many years. We could probably talk for hours, but we got to move along here. So lastly, this is so often the final question. What's next? We're waiting on the Army Corps of Engineers. Is there any kind of expected timeline for their review? So, um, you know, basically the Army Corps uh, in March said that there's no, they're not planning to make a decision on the environmental in, uh, review that they're undertaking until 2026. And, you know, they had previously announced that they were going to take a more, more thorough uh, look at the environmental assessment, uh, more thorough than Enbridge had asked for. Um, and, and their assessment considers alternatives to a project as well as cumulative impacts and foreseeable development in a project area rather than the more narrow scope of review that Enbridge had asked for. So, you know, it's several years down the road when it comes to the Army Corps. Um, and I think, you know, it's one of these things where many years probably yet to uh, determine whether there's going to be a tunnel or not. Sherry McWhorter and Garrett Ellison are on MLive's Environmental Beat and have been covering the latest developments in the Line 5 saga. The Enbridge Tunnel Project has officially gotten state approval. You can read all about it at MLive.com. Garrett, Sherry, thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Patrick. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having us. The Michigan Supreme Court heard oral arguments today on efforts to raise the state's minimum wage. It's been more than five years in the making for advocates who hope the court's decision will triple the minimum wage for thousands of tipped workers. MLive's Matt Miller was at the hearing today and joins us now. There's some pretty dense legalese to sift through in this story, but let's talk brass tacks. When the court makes a decision on this, what sort of wage increase could we potentially see in Michigan? If the court decides that the 
adopt and amend procedure used to change the ballot initiatives that were proposed in 2018 are unconstitutional, and they decide that those the laws, the ballot initiatives as they were written go into effect immediately, it could very quickly raise the minimum wage across Michigan to about $13 an hour and raise the minimum wage for tipped workers from, I believe, $3.84 an hour to $12 an hour. So that would be a pretty big boost for waiters and a pretty big hit for restaurant owners. Yeah, that is a pretty significant change. And I mean, what are the, some of the hurdles to getting there for proponents of this? You know, in this first round of oral arguments, what stood out to you from either side? Well, this case has been heard twice already. The Court of Claims in 2022 ruled that what the Republican-controlled legislature did in 2018 was unconstitutional, that they were subverting the will of the people by taking measures that were you know, headed to the November ballot that year, adopting them, and then using the fact that they were adopted like any other law to change them. And the, the, it's a complicated process, but the long and the short is that by adopting them, they made it. They made them much easier to change. There's a lower bar for them to clear. The Court of Claims said that what the legislature did was unconstitutional. They also stayed the effect of their decision, meaning they said, we realize there's a lot of issues that are going to be hashed out here, and rather than put these big changes into motion right away, we're going to say this doesn't take effect while the, the sides have time to appeal. The state did appeal. That case went to the Court of Appeals at, who ruled this past summer that there is nothing in the Michigan Constitution that says the legislature couldn't do what they did. One of the justices, uh, Michael Kelly, said in a separate but concurring opinion that while there's nothing in the Constitution that says the legislature can't do this, it's almost certainly not what the people who wrote the, the Constitution intended and that it's anti-democratic. It's really interesting. I mean, there's some serious nitty gritty legal interpretations of Michigan's constitution going on here that are, could be the determining factor in what the minimum wage is in Michigan. As you mentioned, Matt, that wage is currently just over 10 an hour for most workers. But for folks who earn tips, it's much lower, just $3.84 an hour. Depending on how the court rules, that could jump to 12 an hour for tipped workers. Rose White joins us now. She's an economics reporter with MLive and spoke with some of those tipped workers about what the change could mean. Hi, Rose. Hey. So obviously on paper, making more money per hour seems like a positive for anybody, but some of the servers you spoke with were a little bit wary of the change. Why is that? Yeah, so, you know, going into the oral arguments today, sort of groups on both sides of this issue were getting their message out there. So um, earlier this week, uh, an an organization and an advocacy group called Save My Tips, who is um, against increasing the tipped wage, um, organized some roundtables in Grand Rapids and Lansing with servers in those areas who are kind of concerned about some of these changes. So um, I ended up talking to two Grand Rapids servers who um, just mentioned that they're worried that raising the tipped wage means that restaurants could get rid of tips altogether. Um, And so they both mentioned $12 an hour, although that is a bigger increase on paper. If they're not making tips, then that's going to be less than what they actually make. So they both mentioned they make around 20 to $25 an hour with tips. But, you know, on the other hand, um, one of the plaintiffs in the case, the Restaurant Opportunity Center, um, they just mentioned they don't think that tips will go away. You know, we kind of live in a society where 
tipping is the culture um, and, you know, the jokes on the internet are that it has definitely gone too far in some instances. Um, but they just kind of, they their expectation is if this goes through, servers will just be making more money and they'll have more money in their pockets between the higher base pay and the tips. Um, and there is research that shows um, in the eight states that have eliminated a tip wage, restaurant workers actually have lower poverty rates than their counterparts in other states. Um, and there is a higher median wage for some of those workers as well. So those are some of the impacts it could have on the individual workers. But Rose, if tipped workers do start earning, say, 12 an hour, what broader economic impact might that have in the state's restaurant industry? Yeah, as Matt mentioned, this is something that is a big concern to the restaurant industry. And I think that came up in the oral arguments as well Is this isn't a switch you can just flip overnight. Um, Restaurants are not accustomed to paying $12 an hour. That's going to be a huge um, chunk of their budget um, that they'll have to try to figure out. So, you know, a survey from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association, which they're, you know, a group who has been advocating against um, increase in the tipped wage. Um, but this survey of, of um, a couple hundred restaurants across Michigan found that 91% of them are expecting they'll have to increase their menu prices if this ruling is overturned and the tipped wage goes up. Um, and another 58% said they were kind of bracing for layoffs if this happens. So we're not totally sure what the outcome will be, um, if it will be a slower transition that maybe won't be so jarring for these restaurants. And we have seen other states implement this as well. So it's not like Michigan is setting a precedent in any sense. Um, but it is something that has restaurant owners worried, especially some smaller restaurants um, that are maybe still kind of struggling with higher wages across the board anyway. We've been speaking with reporters Rose White and Matt Miller about the latest on five-year efforts to raise the minimum wage for tipped workers in Michigan. Rose, Matt, thanks for your time. We could see temperatures climb into the 50s through much of the state this weekend. But despite the forecast, winter is on its way. And MLive's recreation and travel reporter Emily Bingham is here to tell us how to make the most of it. Hi, Emily. Hey, Patrick. You've written several stories this week all about unique winter activities in Michigan. Let's start way up north in the Keweenaw Peninsula. On Thursday, you wrote about a new sauna destination right on the shores of Lake Superior. Yeah, this is really exciting. Uh, It will be open year-round, but I feel like this winter is the time to get in and experience it. Uh, It is a new sauna experience called Lake Superior Steam, and they are offering a traditional Finnish sauna experience, but it's right on the shores of Lake Superior. So you can take a cold plunge in the lake after your sauna, or if that's a little too intimidating, you can sit on the porch and just take in the lake views. But the sauna is really beautiful, and it has this incredible picture window. So no matter where you're at or what part of the experience you're in, you just get to soak in that gorgeous Upper Peninsula landscape. Let's move downstate now to two state parks that are hosting special evening events this month. Tell us about these enchanted Borealis hikes. Yeah, so this is something that uh, state parks around Michigan offer pretty much every winter, although it changes year to year who offers them. This year, it's Seven Lakes State Park in Holly and Ionia State Recreation Area in Ionia. These enchanted Borealis hikes are just short hikes through the woods after sunset in the dark, but the trails are typically lit by holiday lights and lanterns. And then at the end of the trail, you can gather around a campfire, bring your own s'mores, Uh, Some places you can rent a campfire for you and your crew, and the rental fee is a donation. So just a neat little thing to do uh, with family and friends this winter. All right, Emily. Last but not least, birds. 
The Audubon Christmas Bird Count is an annual tradition. Will you be taking part this season? I will, actually. Um, bird nerd admission. My husband is uh, running our local uh, Christmas bird count, so I will be joining him for part of the day out in the field. Uh, this annual tradition has been going on for more than 100 years. It was an alternative to a long-running tradition of a Christmas bird hunt. And in 1900, an ornithologist in New York said, you know what, instead of shooting birds on Christmas Day, what if we counted them? And it has since become the nation's longest-running community science project. Uh, people all over the uh, U.S. and Canada and even South America head out uh, throughout the month of December on specified dates to simply count birds in small zones uh, near where they live. And anybody can participate. You don't have to go out in the wintry weather to count birds. You can even participate by counting uh, what the birds are at your feeder or in your backyard. Uh, you can find more details online about that at uh, audubon.org. 124 years of counting birds at Christmas time. You can get in on it this year to find out how. Read Emily Bingham's story at MLive.com. Emily, thanks for joining us and let it snow. Amen. Before we wrap up here, we'll take a quick look at this weekend's sports schedule. The Detroit Red Wings will host the Ottawa Senators at the Little Caesars Arena Saturday at 7 p.m. The Pistons' losing streak continues after falling to the Memphis Grizzlies Thursday night. That's 18 losses in a row for Detroit. They're on the road tonight, Friday, in Orlando to play the Magic at 7 p.m. The Detroit Lions are 9-3 after a somewhat unconvincing win in New Orleans last week, but they're still atop the NFC North as they head to Soldier Field this Sunday to play the Chicago Bears. That's a 1 p.m. kickoff on Sunday. Be sure to check out MLive's Dungeon of Doom podcast for post-game analysis. In college hoops, the Michigan State Spartans are off to an underwhelming start. They're 4-4 four four after losing to Wisconsin at home Tuesday night, 70-57. They'll look to bounce back against Nebraska this Sunday at 6.30 p.m. And Michigan Wolverines basketball is 4-5 early in the season. They're headed to Iowa City to take on the Hawkeyes Sunday at 4.30 p.m. And if you hadn't heard, Michigan football is Big Ten champs for a third year in a row. They'll spend December preparing for Alabama in the Rose Bowl for a chance to reach the national championship. That's all for this week. I'm Patrick Shea. Thanks for listening to Michigan News from MLive, and have a great weekend.